Once again, for this wonderful opportunity that we have to open up your precious word, we pray that you would give us soft and tender hearts to hear your word and your truth. Not only, Father, so that we would grow in knowledge, though that is where it begins, of course, but so that we might internalize these things, digest your truth, and, Father, even be thinking about ways that we can apply your truth to our lives so that we would be, as James chapter 1 says, doers of your word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles, brethren, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please do so in honor of God's Word. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And never forget that this is God's authoritative, inerrant, infallible, inspired Word. Amen? Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Well, we are back this morning, um, as you know, in the book of Philippians. We were there before taking a couple of weeks to just help us process through how to engage sin in a loving and truthful way in the context of the church. And I hope that those two sermons were helpful to you even as we move forward um, as far as fostering a culture in our church that is grace-fueled, that is spirit-empowered, that is loving and engaging sin in the lives of others and then opening up your life to be um, addressed in that particular area for the sake of your sanctification. But we're back in Philippians, and if you remember, we were in the middle of a mini-series Uh, titled A Kingdom Perspective, understanding that the lenses through which we see all of life and through which we live our Christian life should be God's kingdom. And if you remember, we've seen that kingdom-minded people seek the progress of the gospel at all costs. We are here on mission as believers, and so we see gospel progress. We saw in the face of our many trials. We saw that in the life of Paul in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And we see gospel progress in the face of life or death, that whether we live or die, we should want to see Christ exalted in everything in our lives and in the lives of others. Well, this morning, we want to consider our pursuit of gospel progress as we seek to walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. Walking worthy of the gospel of Christ. As I mentioned earlier, this week is Thanksgiving week, right? And while Thanksgiving should be a way of life for us, This is a wonderful opportunity, brethren, for us to pause and to really sit down before the Lord. And I don't know what your practice is, but I have journals and I write on my journals or even on my iPhone, uh, type out notes, but especially my journals over the years. And I like to sit down at this time of the year especially and write down the blessings that God has bestowed upon me and my family and in the lives of people in the church. Just to be able to rehearse and be reminded of the evidences of His grace in our lives. I hope that you do that in some capacity, whether it looks that way for you or a different way. We need to be people who are grateful for what the Lord has done. So I was thinking this week about how thankful I am for my wife and how thankful I am for my family, my kids, young and older. I'm thankful for you guys, for Eastridge. 
and for uh, even opening up the invitation for us to be here and have the grace of ministering alongside of you guys and to this dear church. I'm thankful for Washington. Beautiful this time of the year, huh? Even with the rains and all of that, we used to hate rains. Now we're like Washingtonians who love rain, you know? <laughs> and, even, and even ice crust all over our cars in the mornings at 5.30, 6 a.m. What in the world? I was asking some brethren, came in the office the other day, sister, any tips on how to deal with this kind of stuff, you know? So she sent me a link to something. Pretty sweet. So I'm thankful for Washington and for this wonderful area. But you know what I'm most thankful for, brethren? And one of our brothers mentioned it this morning during elder prayer. I'm so thankful for the gospel. Aren't you? I'm thankful for the gospel. Because in the midst of a fallen and broken world and all of the pain and problems in our society and even the trials in our lives, if it wasn't for the gospel of Jesus Christ, we wouldn't have any hope, brethren. We wouldn't have any hope at all. As Christians, we've been saved by the greatest message of all, and that is the good news of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that every single day you relish and celebrate that amazing gospel in your life. And that you've submitted yourself to the person and the work of Jesus. This is a wonderful message which begins, as we know, with God. It reminds us, we're reminded in the gospel, that a holy, just, and loving, all-powerful God made us each of us, and collectively, for His glory and for our good. And He made us so that we might enjoy His creation. And because He is Creator, and because we are His creatures, He has complete rights over our lives. We are not autonomous creatures who have a right to rule ourselves. We are accountable to God and subject to Him in all of life. The Gospel is also about mankind. And it pertains to each and every one of us. It reminds us that as His creatures, we've, we've each rebelled against His holy rule, His righteous rule. The Gospel reminds us that we've committed mutiny against our Maker. That apart from Jesus and prior to Christ, we are sinners who've broken God's law. We've gone astray from our Creator. We don't run after a relationship with God, which is why we were created. And the result of that is that each of us are guilty and stand condemned before Him apart from Jesus. The Gospel, however, is a message of hope, isn't it? Knowing that without Him we are without hope, our gracious and loving God sent His Son Jesus into the world, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, to perform a rescue operation, brethren, to save us from our sins and from God's coming judgment, being fully God and fully man, the Lord Jesus lived the perfect, sinless, righteous, blameless life that you and I should live, but we cannot. Amen? And then He died on the cross bearing our sins, absorbing God's wrath and God's punishment against us for our sins. But on that third, uh, glorious day, the third day, as promised, as Jesus promised, and the Scriptures promised, He rose from the dead victorious over the great tyrants of sin and death. Amen? And then He now sits at the right hand of the Father, and we await the final death blow of our Savior upon this world, those who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the wonderful Gospel. And it's through this glorious gospel message and through this message alone, listen, that God is now declaring to all of mankind, to each person living in this world, past, present, and future, that they should repent of their sins and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. He is the only source of salvation from their sins and from God's coming judgment. For the Bible says that there is salvation in how many people? In no one else. 
There is no other name that has been given among men by which we must be saved except through the person and the work of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the marvelous Gospel message. The wonderful reality that a holy and just and loving God has reconciled sinners to Himself through the person and the work of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope and pray again that you regularly visit the foot of the cross, the empty cross, and rehearse and relish in this wonderful, marvelous Gospel message, brethren. And it says the Apostle Paul contemplates this glorious message of the Gospel as he sits in jail in Rome, as we've learned from the book of Philippians, that he exhorts these believers here in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27 with the following command, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ. In a manner that balances the scales. If this is a scale here, right? Ugly scale. And on this side over here is the weightiness of the Gospel message. Forgiveness of sins, eternal life, blessings, everything that pertains to life and godliness has been given to you, right? Forgiveness, a relationship with God. That's, that's weighty, isn't it? Paul says, balance the scales in the way that you conduct yourself. Walk in a manner worthy of this wondrous, marvelous Gospel message in light of the amazing nature of what God has done in the Gospel. Walk in a manner that balances the, the scales. And we've seen this before. He doesn't know for sure what's going to happen to him. right? He, re he reiterates that here in verse 27. I don't know whether I, I, if I'm going to remain absent or I'm going to come and see you again. Whatever the case, he says, walk worthy of the Gospel of our Lord. That language there, walking worthy of the Gospel, is, is language of citizenship. It's the language of, of being a good citizen in a country or a society and being one who performs your duties as an excellent citizen of that particular country. We talk about that, right? We want to be good American citizens. We're thankful for the country that we live in, right? Even in the midst of all the corruption, we're thankful that it's still a, a free country where we can worship God. So we want to be good citizens as Christians. That's the language here. They would have understood this language as many of them were, were proud citizens of Rome. But Paul says it's even greater than that for the believer. He says, I want you to conduct yourself as proud citizens of a, of a heavenly kingdom, he says. In fact, later, in chapter 3 and verse 20, he reminds him of this. And us, that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and thus they and us must conduct ourselves accordingly as citizens of that kingdom. There is a worthy conduct that should be part of every believer's life that is right and that is appropriate for those who claim to be citizens of this heavenly kingdom. As believers, we need to be reminded of that this morning. And so Paul says, no matter what befalls me, I want to know that you're walking worthy of this marvelous, wondrous gospel message, right? I want you to, I want to know that you're living in the light of and commensurate with the magnitude and the weightiness of the grace that you've received in this Gospel. This is the main command of the text here. Now Paul is going to expand upon this worthy walk. Now in the rest of verses 27-30, through 30, this is one long sentence in the Greek, verses 27-30, through 30, and the central theme of these verses, listen, is Gospel unity. Which I told you before a few weeks ago that that is really the, the grand theme of uh, Philippians. It's, it's about Gospel unity and walking in Gospel unity. This is huge in Philippians. 
Next week, we're going to get into chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and talk about how because we are one in Christ, we need to be putting others before ourselves and walking in unity again. He's going to get into this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we'll see Paul calling out a couple of ladies to walk in unity and calling others to come alongside of them and help them, whatever the specific issues were. Unity. And then obviously here in verse 27, he says that we must be of one spirit, one soul, he says, striving together for the faith of the Gospel. It's about walking in unity together, not just individualistically in an isolated fashion. Right? The more that we live out and flesh out biblical discipleship, brethren, and biblical Christianity, the more that we will realize that we are not called into a relationship with God through Jesus to be living isolated lives. We're called to live in, in community. Yes, it's a very personal relationship with God through Jesus, but we are called into a community of brethren. It's the body of Christ, right? So it's gospel unity together as one. We're going to see that in this particular text. That unity is important to God and it should be of highest priority to us. And keep in mind, for clarity's sake, that he's not talking here about some ecumenical or wishy-washy so-called unity that throws out the truth of the Word of God. That's not what Paul is talking about here. We're talking about God's kind of unity. A unity where truth and love are held tightly together. It's a loving unity, yes, but it's a unity that is uncompromising in the truth, practice, and love. Amen? That's what we want to be about as a church. This is all about gospel unity. And so let's consider three ways here that in unity we must live worthy of the gospel. If you're taking notes, here are three ways that in unity we must live worthy of the gospel, okay? First of all, write this down. We must stand firm in gospel unity. As a collective body, we must stand firm in gospel unity. Look at the text in verse 27. He says, only, this is the first word in the original Greek, by the way, for emphasis. Whenever we see that in the original, it's for emphasis. The one and only thing is, is a sense here that I want to hear more than anything is that you are conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that, here's what walking worthy of the gospel will result in, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. You know what? type of language this is, brethren? This is military language here. This is language from the battlefield, if you will. It's the determination of a unified battalion of soldiers who will not budge one inch from their post. That's the idea here. That was the, the etymology of the language here. It's military language. It's having a strong defensive front in the face of the ongoing onslaught and opposition of the enemy. It's this military mentality with grace. This is what he's talking about. And it reminds us of this, that the Christian life is not a playground, but a battleground. Have you lived that out in your life and seen that? It's a battleground, isn't it? It's daily spiritual war. As you lay on your bed at night, on your pillow, and you remember the war that you've been in for sanctification. Amen? Amen? But then you remember the grace of God and His victory and the finished work of Christ on your, your behalf. And you pray, God, help me to live in the light of that wonderful victory the next day in the spiritual battle that I face every day. But it's not just individualistically that we should think that way. It's a battle of, of our, uh, as a collective whole, as a body of Christ. 
But there's constant opposition. And so Paul says, I want you to stand firm in one spirit. And remember, the command is not just to you as an individual, though it is that. It is to us collectively as a body of Christ, as one. The Christian life is not like walking on a field of of daisies. It's like a minefield, right? It's instead like being on a battlefield full of deadly hazards. Paul is saying, if you know this, then you will live as one. He says, I want you to stand firm in one spirit. Notice that in verse 27. In one spirit, which refers to unity of mindset and unity of motive. Unity of mindset and unity of motive. That our mindset in the spiritual war will be that we are one spiritual family, thus we need one another. Thus we need to have each other's back in the sanctified kind of sense. Our motive inwardly will be sincere, without pretense. It won't be a facade. It won't be a type of fake unity that you are about that throws out the the truth, right? Where you are acting externally, all the while in your heart harboring bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness towards others. That's not what he's talking about here. It's unity of mindset and unity of motive in the light of the spiritual war that we face. And brethren, I wonder how many of us think and live this way from the heart. Or we fight by the grace of God to to think and live this way. Hey, I'm in a spiritual battle and so are my brethren. I need to have their back. Because if we're the worst thing is to be an isolated soldier on the battlefield, right? Away from your battalion. That's the last thing that you want to be. That's the idea here. I want to have your back and I want you to have my back. So that we both become like Jesus together. Because we're looking out for those things that are are best for the other person in accordance with the Word of God. What's the old saying? Christians are often mostly known for stepping on their wounded. Have you heard of that? Christians are most often known for stepping on on their wounded. That's true in some cases. Right? Or instead of Coming alongside of one another when we detect weakness or failure, what do we have the tendency to do in our natural state when we're not walking by the Spirit? We step on one another. We make matters worse. Rather than being helpful, we become hurtful. Rather than being constructive, we become destructive. Rather than being loving, we become hateful towards one another. Rather than being edifying, we we are tearing one another down in our hearts and then that fleshes itself out in our words and in our actions towards others, right? Right? or even withholding our love, or practicing indifference towards them. Listen, brethren, the opposite of of love isn't just hate. The opposite of love is also indifference and ignoring one another. That's worse than somebody verbalizing how they don't like you, right? Just avoid them. Just avoid you. Treat you with indifference. Ignore your existence. That's even more hurtful. And yet we are fellow citizens of a heavenly army Is this how you think about your brothers and sisters in Christ? And is this how you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the Gospel? Where you love others, where you have their back in a biblical kind of sense? Brethren, we are in a spiritual battlefield. And again, on this battlefield, the most comforting thing to know is that other Christian soldiers have your back and vice versa. Nothing more encouraging and comforting than that in the midst of the opposition and the attacks in our culture against biblical Christianity. 
To know that through thick and thin, we're coming to stand firm in gospel unity together, right? We already have a, a hostile culture against us. Have you noticed? It's, it's explicit. It's active. How are you countering that? By standing firm in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or is it worse in the church, right? That shouldn't ever be the case. That we go to the secular world for comfort and encouragement rather than where it should be happening in this, this wonderful hub of grace here, right? The local church, this beautiful living organism. This lighthouse of grace and truth. That's where this should flourish. And so we need to stand firm in gospel unity. We can't do this alone. I can't do this alone, brethren. I need my brothers in Christ. I need my sister in Christ in the home, my wife. I need you guys. Right? Is that, how, is that your heart? I need my brethren sitting next to me right now. I need them. They need me in a, in a sanctified kind of sense, right? I love Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to that one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. It's beautiful, isn't it? You hear that? There's strength in numbers as believers. There's strength in numbers. And so can I ask you, who are you walking alongside of right now in terms of burden bearing? Who are you caring for as far as helping them carry those loads, those trials, the suffering of an emotional nature, of a physical nature, right? Obviously, we have to be very careful when it comes to males and females, but sister in Christ, what other sisters in the Lord in the context of this church are you coming alongside of right now? To bear their burdens, to pray for them. Have you made yourself available? And brothers, who are you coming alongside of? Who are you staking yourself next to in life right now? To help hold them up. To stand firm in gospel unity alongside of them. To help them stand firm in the Christian life. Are you even asking Listen, oftentimes we're so preoccupied, especially during the holiday season, where yes, brethren, there are some very understandable moments of weakness and sadness, right? Loved ones who have gone home to be with the Lord or not. I understand that. I have some of those as well. But we have to be so careful, especially during the holiday season, that we don't become so introverted and so isolated and so self-absorbed, right? And preoccupied with our own worries and our own concerns and our own anxieties that we are not reaching out to anybody else. God wants us to come alongside of others. And I don't know if you have found this, the more that you do that, when you come alongside of others in the midst of your hurts and your pains, God brings comfort to your heart even as you become a comfort to, in the lives of your brethren. Have you, have you experienced that? I have. Read 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 8 later on today. The God of all comfort comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we are able now to come alongside of others to comfort them in their affliction. Have you read that text? Beautiful text. Who are you coming alongside of even this holiday season to help them stand firm in the gospel? Secondly, secondly, we must strive forward in gospel unity. Write that down. Not only must we stand firm in gospel unity, but we must strive forward in gospel unity. 
If the first way, or the first point was defensive in nature, the second point here is offensive in nature. And I want you to see this. I want you to see that unity is not just the presence of peaceful relationships, so that is one aspect of unity, but that unity is also the presence of the pursuit of common purpose, and that common purpose that we're pursuing together is the greater progress of the gospel that is greater than any of us. This common purpose that we pursue together as one is to be our ongoing devotion, brethren. This is where Paul goes next in verse 27. No matter what happens to me, he says, I want to hear that you are with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Underline that. Now he transitions here from military language, listen, to the language of of athletics. That's what this is here. With one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's, It's language from athletics. It's from defensive language now to now offensive language. Striving together translates a a Greek word from which we get our words athlete and athletics. Very interesting. I love Paul's imagery as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us. The Christian Christian life is not just a, a battlefield where we need to have one another's backs in unity, but listen, it's also like being a part of an athletic team where we are competing alongside one another as a team pushing and pulling forward in one direction together. How many of you here are avid Seahawks fans? Come on, don't be ashamed. They're, they're doing pretty good right now. <laughs> right? By the way, I like the Seahawks, and I'm becoming more and more of an avid Seahawks fan. But yesterday, I just, this is a side note, I was watching, 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 not watching, but watching the Washington Huskies. They're, they're pretty good, right? Anyway, Bill, didn't you go to Washington? <sighs> Brother. Good, good team, man. <laughs> so we are avid Washington Husky fans and Seahawks fans, right? You've seen it. In order for that running back or that fullback, as I was watching yesterday, to gain good yardage, what do you need? You need a good offensive line, don't you? And those offensive linemen are all pulling and pushing together alongside of one another in unity cohesively so that that running back can gain 10, 15, 25 yards, right? I saw that a couple of times yesterday, and then they showed the replay after a good gain of yards. And I love watching the linemen pulling in one direction together, making it possible for that runner to advance and gain good yardage. I love that. And I love how good color commentators highlight not just the running back, but the offensive linemen, right? Who are there next to one another, working in unity. Listen, this is to be true in the church as well, brethren. That picture that as Christians, we are part of, of God's team. That is the name on the back of our jerseys. We are, we are Christians who, who have the, the name of God on our back jerseys, right? They're part of His team. And as one, with one mind, literally with one soul, He says, we are to strive together for the faith of the Gospel. There's the difference. Mark that. We're not just after some, some earthly goal as believers. We want to see Jesus exalted. We want to see Christ made much of in the hearts of spiritually dead sinners who as we share Christ with them, they repent from their sins and they put their faith in Jesus and now they live out the purpose for which they were created, which is to glorify God and enjoy Him, yes? And advance His cause here in this world. And so mark that it's for the faith of the gospel that we are a team, right? 
We are not striving together to garner support for our personal agendas, our personal opinions, our personal preferences, our personal popularity and notoriety. It's all about Christ. It's for Him that we do this. Everything and anything in life, brethren, is subordinate to the greater progress of the Gospel. Anything. Our highest priority and singular purpose in this life should be personally and collectively to make much of of Jesus and not make much of our soapboxes or anything else that we have opinions about for that matter. We've already seen this in the life of Paul. This is Paul's mentality. Whether I live or die, I want to see Christ exalted. Whether I live or die, I want to edify you. If I'm here, I'm going to build you up, brethren, so that you worship Jesus all the more. If the Lord takes me home, that would be very much better because that's the ultimate goal. I want to go home. He says, whether I live or die, I want to see Christ exalted. And in this, in that Christ is exalted, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Is that your heart? It needs to grow and We need to fan the flame in our hearts all the more to see Jesus exalted even during this holiday season. By the way, the sense in verse 27, if you notice there, is the faith which consists of the Gospel. Or the faith which which is the Gospel itself. Because that's our goal. The Gospel advancing, right? And the idea here in the language is that we are taking the, the Gospel itself into enemy territory as a team. We are going on the offensive, on the attack. You remember that cool scene in one of the Lord of the Rings movies where um, it's like one of the orcs or whatever you call those ugly monsters, one of those orcs carries a bomb, right? Carrying a bomb, he runs directly into that, on, that only small opening at the base of the castle, right? Helms deep, and he blows up the castle. You remember that scene? I often think about that scene. For us as believers, we're not orcs, Right? though we were before Jesus, right? Even uglier on the inside. But I often think about that imagery when we think about believers. And I think about my own mission here in this world. And for us as a, as a collective church, globally and local churches, that we're to be taking the bomb of the gospel directly into enemy territory, yes? In fact, that's where we are right now. Until Jesus delivers the final death blow, there's wickedness and sin in this world. But we know who sits on the throne, amen? It's a matter of time. And Jesus is being patient, right? God is being patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's the heart of God, okay? Yes, God is sovereign, but I also know the heart of God. And that's why we're here to take the gospel into enemy territory so that as we share, God awakens the the spiritually dead hearts of, of sinners and draws them to Himself so that they come to know Jesus and exalt Christ and join us in this growing heavenly choir. That's what we need to be about, right? We understand this. We have the, the bomb of the gospel, brethren. We are in the strong position. Stop living as if we are defeatists, right? No, we have the, the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Amen? You are uh, evidence of that. You weren't always seeking God. You were walking in spiritual death. And God, through His gospel, saved you. And so we are in the strong position. We are taking something good, a message of hope to a hopeless and helpless and rebellious people in this world. If you have spiritual eyes to see, that will be your priority. To strive forward in gospel unity. But there are so many hindrances or obstacles which hold us back from this priority, aren't there? Such things as unresolved conflicts, 
fleshly rivalries, fleshly unforgiveness, fleshly pride that leads us to not humble ourselves in our relationships. Things like a fixation on materialism distracts us from this singular purpose of striving forward for the sake of the gospel in unity, right? We're so fixated on the toys and the stuff of life, even as believers. Remember, for the love of money and the longing of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Remember that? And some, by longing for it, have pierced themselves with many a grief, Paul says to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We love materialism. The stuff of life becomes our idol. So many distractions, brethren. Me too, truth be told. So many things that distract us from striving forward in gospel unity together. Things like activities that aren't even necessarily evil. But they take most or uh, or all of our time. And thus, we don't even have time to share the gospel with anybody. We don't have time to, to go into our communities and build relationships with people so that they might come to know Christ in some capacity because they're watching our lives and then we have an opportunity to share the message with them. We're so busy and distracted by even good things, right? We don't even have time to be in the Word or to serve in the church. And if we do, God gets your leftovers or your scraps. If we were to look at your calendar, even as you look at 2024 and resolutions for you in your calendar 2024, if we were to look at your calendar, which we're not, but God sees your calendar, right? Are you redeeming the time because the days are evil? What do we see on there? God receiving the scraps and the leftovers of your time and resources and energy? Or is He first in everything? And even other things that are wonderful, fun things to do, even through those, they are part of you enjoying your wonderful God and worshiping Him in the light of those things that you get to enjoy. What would it be? Besetting sins can hinder us as well. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 instructs us to lay aside the sins which so easily entangle us, right? So that we could run the race to win of the Christian life. Sins which hold us down. Frankly, some of us are not willing to repent and discard of some of those sins. And I want to remind you again, as I have done before, whatever that pet sin or pet struggle that you're not repenting of in the quietness of your own heart when nobody else can see except you and God and you're there, That part of your heart God wants now, not later. And it doesn't matter what what humans think of you. If you are not living in the light of His presence and you're not dealing with that sin or sins and turning from them, confessing them to the Lord and confessing them to, to the people whom you've hurt, God wants that area of your life. He will have no rivals, right? James chapter 4, He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. God is jealous for our souls, brethren. Let's not play games with God. Don't play games with God. Besetting sins have a way of detracting us from walking and striving forward in gospel unity. Being about those things. Spiritual lethargy, laziness. For some of us, brethren, we know the right thing to do. We're just lazy and unwilling to do the hard work. We're okay with others doing the work in the church. We're okay with others serving, but we're not willing to carry the load. We come to take, 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 and not to give. That's our mentality oftentimes. We all have work to do in that area. Closely related to this is a lack of commitment, right? Some people feel like they've they've been burned in the past, 
And so they're reluctant to take their commitment to the next level, whatever the case is. None of those things are good excuses before the Lord for you not to be committed to your brethren and to the local church. I want to remind you of that this morning. And you won't be able to stand before God someday as your Savior. And when you're giving an account for your life lived in the power of the Spirit as a believer, not for salvific reasons, but just because of the quality of your life, you won't be able to stand before God someday and say, God, it was their fault. I didn't get involved, and I didn't serve in the church, and I didn't do this or do that, use my spiritual gifts and all of that because of that person. What do you think your father's going to say? Oh, it's okay, little one. It's okay, you know. I doubt it. I want to hear these words. Well done, good and faithful servant, sinner saved by grace, Kempis Hernandez. Don't you? We all do. All of these things and other sins that I mentioned hinder us from striving forward with our church family for the greater advancement of the gospel, brethren. And we need to repent of those things. Confess them to the Lord and talk to a a person, a brother or sister in Christ who can even come alongside of you and hold you accountable in this particular area. And all of these sins and others, to one extent or another, show that we've lost perspective of what's most important and why we are here on mission here in this world. Using the, the terminology that, that uh, Paul uses in this particular passage, right? An army of, of soldiers know that they are there to fight on the battlefield. They know that. That's their mentality, right? An athletic team knows that, that they're going to leverage all of their strengths to win a championship. If we're going to take Paul's imagery here, right, of spiritual warfare in the battlefield and a team, an athletic team, then we recognize that each person is important, but we are about the collective whole in what we're pursuing here, which is the exaltation of Christ. In his day, Jesus said to the multitudes, I read it to you before, who were quite distracted by these and many other things, even in their day, Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Hear that? Seek God's kingdom and anything and everything that in accordance with God's word is the right thing to do. His righteousness. Meaning those things that are in accordance with His righteous standard. Walking in obedience to His word. Doing the right thing no matter what the cost and what the pain might bring, right? He says, be about that. Be about the kingdom and His righteousness and everything else will be added to you. He wasn't saying there He's going to give you everything that you want, believer. He wasn't saying that. Because we don't often know, most of the time, what is best for us. Amen? But He's going to give you, provide you with everything that you need. Everything that is essential for life and service to Him, not for ourselves. Listen, that's a promise. That's a promise. That's a promise that if you, during this lifetime, are spent for Him, He will deliver greater blessings upon you now and forevermore than you can ever, ever imagine. Amen? That's a promise. The question is, do you believe that promise? Do you believe it? Is God's character dependable? Is God faithful? And He is. We can attest to this again and again in our lives. That if we live for Him now, He will bless us now and for all eternity. That if you die daily to yourself now, you will yet live now and forevermore. Quantity and quality of life is eternal life. Think about that. Quantity and quality of life. And so this is ultimately a litmus test of our faith and love for Him if we're going to strive forward in gospel unity or not. It begins with us individually, yes, but it's fleshed out in functional oneness together. Right? 
moving in one direction together. Now, as we boldly contend for the gospel, inevitably there's going to be opposition. And so how should we respond in unity to this opposition? Thirdly, we should be willing to suffer fearlessly in gospel unity. Write that down. Suffer fearlessly in gospel unity. This is in verses 28 through 30. Paul knows that as he instructs these Philippian brethren to take the gospel into enemy territory, it won't come without opposition. And so he adds, look at verse 28. He says, In no way alarmed by your opponents. In other words, as you strive together to advance the gospel, don't be like frightened or startled horses in the face of your opponents. That's the terminology there. That's the etymology of the word alarmed. To be shaken or startled or fearful or frightened like horses. What would be the opposite of this? Being alarmed. Well, instead of being frightened or alarmed or shaken, they should be fearless. Yes? Fearless. Not intimidated, but instead courageous in the face of their opponents. It says one mentor told me early on, Kempis, when you receive pushback for speaking the truth, don't even let them smell fear in you, for you are a son of the king, he says. Man, that never left me. And I've been fearful many a time and I've sinned in that area over the years, but that really stuck with me. You know what I'm saying? We were just young bucks, college students. I had just I had the eggshell for the new birth on my head still, right? Fresh from being born again. And, and we're going on to these college campuses and doing open-air preaching and engaging other college and career students for the gospel and all of that. And I was afraid. I was so scared. And he said, no. Don't even let them smell fear in you, for you are a son of the king. Don't ever forget that, he said. That stuck with me. See, we are the ones in the strong position, brethren. We are the ones that have the bomb of the gospel. Amen? And you do that in love, with compassion. Not in a, hey, we have the truth, baby. That is not the attitude that God wants from us either, right? We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, Paul says. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. But the, the tone of 2 Corinthians 5 is Paul pleading and begging with compassion that people would come to know Jesus. That is the heart of our proclamation. Amen? But we are in the strong position. And we shouldn't be shaken and fearful and frightened. We have the Gospel bomb that can change everything and is changing everything, brethren, one life at a time. Amen? Including our own lives. Watch this. When we respond in this fearless manner, this will result in two things, right? According to verse 28, this will be a sign, he says, a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. Two things will happen here. And this word sign here in verse 28, mark it, it's from the legal world back in the day. It meant a, a demonstration or a proof of something. That's what he means by sign. It's a demonstration or a proof of something. Your fearless suffering Christian will be proof of what? Of destruction for them, speaking of gospel opponents. Paul is saying that as enemies of the gospel witness our faithfulness and our fearlessness, this will be proof that their end is in view. That's what he means here. That's the sense of the word there in verse 28, destruction. You see that word? It's a strong word used in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, of the Antichrist, the son of lawlessness, who is referred to as the son of, ready, destruction. 
And then Revelation chapter 17 and verses 8 and 11 of the, of the ultimate end of the beast and of those who are going to hell due to their rejection of Jesus and God's provision for the forgiveness of their sins. It says that they will be destroyed. Their end is coming. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. It's used of the present and future end of false teachers who teach error. The text there says that they will bring a swift, ready, destruction upon themselves. It's speaking here, and Paul's speaking of the ultimate end of God's enemies. That's what he's talking about. And the point is that when we display fearless courage in the face of suffering, this becomes a sure proof, a sign to the non-believing world that their sure end is coming soon. That's the sense of this. It's why 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 says, Do not fear their intimidation, Christian. Don't fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled, but sanctify, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. I love that. Note also that this fearlessness will result in verse 28 in salvation for you, Christian. In salvation for you. Paul's already used his word salvation back in verse 19, if you notice. Or he says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance or for my salvation. Same word. And if you remember, we saw a few weeks ago that he wasn't just speaking about immediate deliverance from his circumstances, but about his final deliverance, his final vindication, his final salvation. Because for Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain, no matter what happens to him. So this is speaking of the end in view, right? I love what one brother comes, comments here. He says, a believer's faithfulness and fearlessness in persecution is a sign that points in two directions. One for the persecutor, thumbs down, and one for the persecuted, thumbs up, end quote. I love that. But how is it? We might ask, how is it that when we respond fearlessly, courageously in the face of opposition, that it's a sign of destruction for our enemies, but of salvation for us. What does this look like, right? What does this look like? Well, just consider that the world sees a lot of religious people, brethren. There are a lot of spiritual people in our society. Even in the Pacific Northwest, it's a very spiritual area, but demonically spiritual, isn't it? People see a lot of religious people, a lot of spiritualists, even professing Christians. They see them and see us. And when they see people who are religious or, or have an ideology or whatever, they see how they live anxious and fearful and joyless and despairing, even frustrated and sinfully angry because of the things that they see around in society when things get tough, right? And based upon these sinful responses, they are drawing conclusions about the God that we or they claim to worship. Think about that. It's not just the content that they're offended by or taken back by. It's more so the lack of confidence in the supposed deity that you claim has the answers for you. That's going to change things for you. That's our society. And when people witness these sinful responses, right, they are questioning and doubting the validity, in our case, of our Christianity. Wow. You guys say this, this Jesus has a lot of power? You can't even live with joy. Where's your joy? You guys are hopeless, despairing. You always seem like angry people, right? 
Not because you're speaking up for the truth, but because you're just fleshly frustrated. Why should I believe in your God? See, to them, this says something about the validity of the truth that we proclaim, right? And this God who supposedly brings hope through Jesus Christ. You see how powerful our testimony is before the watching world? In our work environments and neighborhoods, right? Here in our area, in our region. Conversely, on the other side, when you and I are joyful and peaceful and calm and confident and serene because we know that God is sovereign and that He's in control of everything and because we know that Jesus sits on His throne and one thing we know for sure, no matter how you disagree with eschatology and where you're at, we know for sure that Jesus is coming. Amen? We know He's coming. And that one day there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells and those who put their faith in Jesus will be with Him now and forevermore enjoying Him in joyful bliss. When you live with that kind of perspective, right? People will bear witness to the greatness of who God is. Even if they disagree with us. I've had people say to me, you know what? I disagree with you. This Jesus thing is not for me. But I really respect the way that you live your life. Right? Even, by the way, when I failed them and I had to ask for their forgiveness in a secular laboratory context. You're asking for, hey, everything's good. You don't have to ask for my forgiveness. No, I need to ask for your forgiveness. My facial expression there wasn't kind toward you. And I want you to know that doesn't honor Christ, my Lord. Whoa, whoa, what? So in our weakness and in our victory, they bear witness to our testimony. And they bring glory to Christ in the way that even they will reject him, knowing that they had a powerful testimony that they rejected in the lives of God's people. Think about that. I would encourage you to really consider this as the holidays are here, that your sense of joy and calmness and serenity and hope, brethren, during the holiday season is a powerful witness to the watching world and to extended family and even family that you may still have under your roof who reject Jesus. It's a powerful testimony to them that will lead to gospel opportunities one way or the other, right? Think about this. Now, Paul can call them to suffer well and to do so in unity because this is part of the deal. Look at verse 28. He says, and that too from God. See that? What is Paul referring to there? Well, I think the following verse, keep reading, it tells us, verse 29, for, there's the explanation, whenever you see that little word for, there's the explanation which connects to that last little phrase, for to you it has been granted, we've seen this before, right? This word for grace, granted, grace. This grace has been given to you, he says, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, that's speaking of our salvation, but also, here's part and parcel of what, that same grace, also that you suffer for His sake. Paul says, this is part of the grace of God. Not only that you believe in Him, but also part of the grace of God is that you suffer for the name of Jesus. That's grace that God has given you as well. Both are grace. Your salvation and your suffering. And so Paul essentially is saying, don't be shocked and surprised. Suffering is part of the deal. It's part and parcel of this, right? Implication, suffer fearlessly. Don't be intimidated. Don't be alarmed. Don't be shocked by pain and suffering because of your stance for Jesus in this world and the way that you live your life in accordance with His righteousness. By the way, to suffer for His sake there is in the present tense. Meaning that it's a a continual abiding way of life for us as believers to suffer for the sake of Christ. In other words, it's part and parcel of your ongoing calling that you suffer for the sake of Christ. I love that. 
In other words, it's by divine design. It's not just happening to you as if God threw some curveball at you, believer, that you suffer for the name of Jesus. It's part of your call as a follower of Christ. Listen, if you're not ever suffering for the sake of Christ, whether opposition, indifference, whatever that might be, then either, either you're not a Christian, if this is you as a pattern, you never make a stand for Christ, you never, ever, ever make a stand for the truth in a way that brings glory to Jesus, and you don't even care about that. Either you're not a Christian, or you're not sharing Christ or standing up for Him as you should. Right? 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, ready, will be persecuted. Pretty clear, isn't it? Other texts, the call of Jesus in Mark chapter 8, anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow after me. That was, me that was language of suffering for the sake of following after Jesus. It doesn't mean that we go pick a fight with people and call that suffering, right? That's sinful fleshliness, not suffering for the sake of Christ. But if you're walking in righteousness, and standing up for the name of Jesus, there will be persecution. There will be opposition. There will be indifference. There will be hostility from people, active or passive. Now notice, they're not alone in this suffering. Paul adds these humble and comforting words in verse 30. Notice, experiencing the same conflict. And that word there, conflict, is, is the word from which we get agony from. Experiencing the same agony or conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul's not being insensitive here. He's simply saying, by the way, guys, I want, you to, I want to remind you that you've seen this type of suffering in me in the past 10 years or so ago in Acts 16 when the church was founded. Remember that? And Paul wound up in jail with Silas. You've seen this suffering in me in the past, and now in the present you hear it to be in me. I'm in jail for the sake of Christ. I'm with you. In other words, Paul is saying, you're not alone, brethren. You're not alone. And that's the message for us even as we talk about gospel unity, brethren. As we strive forward to suffer fearlessly for the gospel, you are not alone. Do you recognize that? We are here. I know that I'm not alone. I know that you guys are in the same battle that I'm in. That's essentially what Paul is saying here, right? We're going we're gonna to do great things for God together. You've seen this in my life a decade ago or so when the church was founded. You're seeing it in me in the present. You're not alone. There's a wonderful account that is told of a veteran English soldier, I love this, who once came upon this young recruit, new recruit, and this newbie young recruit sat there shaking and trembling with fear as he anticipated the pain of possible war. He sat there shaking, just alarmed. And so upon seeing him, this veteran soldier felt compassion for him, and he says to this young recruit with, with great courage and gentle words, he says, come young man. And you and I will together do great things for England. I love that. Come, young men, and you and I will together do great things for England. This is essentially what Paul is doing here, brethren. As a suffering veteran Christian, who he says to the Philippian church, come on, church, take heart, because you and I together will continue to do great things for Christ. And that's the case for us as believers in this region, right? As a body of Christ. We want to suffer fearlessly in gospel unity and do great things for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it means for us to have a kingdom perspective and to walk worthy of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your wonderful grace and mercy upon us.
for the way that you remind us of your love for us, even in the midst of our suffering and our pain. Lord, we reject the wealth, health, prosperity gospel. We know that that is not biblical, that doesn't honor you, because part of what you've called us to is to suffer fearlessly in this world for the sake of Christ. Help us not to do it because of our, not to suffer for our own sin unrighteously. Help us not to suffer, quote unquote, because of harshness or hostility or fleshliness in our lives. But help us, Father, to set apart Christ in our hearts, always being ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us, which comes through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.